This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Now this is, as I said earlier, is your opportunity to ask questions and pose the difficult questions, the questions that have been, you've been mulling over over the last couple of days. Um, but before we get to that, I'd like to ask each of our panellists to reflect a little on perhaps one, two or three of the key things that they have heard over the past couple of days that they'll be taking away from the conference and not, over, not, not only mulling over but perhaps taking back to practice, to research and to the work that you do. Some of the things, the key things that you've heard and Lynn, I'll begin with you. Given that this, you have been a veteran of 10 of these conferences and this is your last, what are your key takeouts? Thank you for that. My first key takeout, so I was, uh, well, I guess I was looking at that, that graph we keep seeing and thinking about where enlightenment and hype um, are, <laughs> are balanced at the moment. And yesterday we talked a lot about balancing information and the information being balanced and presented and provided, whether it's to health professionals or whether it's to their partners who are receiving care, in a way that they can be actioned, and in a way that can be actioned right now. And that means understanding more than the information, but where each of those people are up to in their conversation, in the treatment um, understanding, in the understanding of the science sometimes, because I think sometimes their understanding of the science, and especially we were looking at um, genetics yesterday, there's lots still to learn. So being able to get that information right at the right time, to me, seems like something we, should, we need to work on right now. It's not something we can, we can let um, go. And then a couple of other smaller things, one, <laughs> smaller things, one was that, uh, and I, I've forgotten who said this, but someone said yesterday, if we want to change our paradigm, if we want to have this revolution, we have to ask new questions. So being really clear about what those questions are and not asking the same questions that we've been asking all the, all the time until now. Um, and and my, my final thought was with all these omics and the pan-omic fusion, Jeremy, thank you for that term, um, I feel that there's so, again, the potential for so many silos, we really do need to bring them together. And it's really reassuring. I, I like that you had your disruptors all in one unit disrupting together, because otherwise they're going to be disrupting in silos and we won't get the changes we want to see. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, very important point. And as for the silos, it was one of our rapporteurs that, that mentioned this yesterday. Melissa and Deborah have joined us at the front, and I'm in fact going to throw over to you now, Melissa. I believe it was you who mentioned the issue of silos. Given what Susan said in that fantastic um, image that you used there, just a reflection from you on what you've just heard. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for that. Susan, it was fantastic. I, uh, Susan's reminded us something that other people said yesterday, but I just love the way she said it, that a small group of people can affect massive change, whether or not it's a small group of clinicians, researchers, or more or powerfully, it's a, a group of consumers. So say, thank you, Susan. And she's getting out the, the great message. And I've learnt so much about Lynch syndrome in the last 24 hours, and I imagine a few people in this room have as well. I love Susan's use of the word partner. Um, health practitioners are partners in our care. 
so. the use of the word partner. Yes. Which is interesting because the use of the word we discussed yesterday, whether we're talking about health consumers, mm. whether we're talking about patients, and the UK has a different, I think you said Harriet, has a different use. You tend to use the word consumer, health consumer? We tend to use patient. Uh, patient, patient, I beg your pardon, yes. Yeah. Um, so, to, yes, to introduce the word partner, it's, uh, it's a simple thing, but gosh, language mm. is powerful, isn't it? It changes the dynamic instantly. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Beautifully put. Thank you, Melissa. Hans, I'd like to throw over to you now because you've been here for the last uh, two days and in, indeed your keynote generated a great deal of discussion. What are uh, 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 two, uh, two or three of the key takeouts that you will take away from what you've heard? So three takeouts at very different levels. Yesterday we discussed a lot about electronic health records, data sharing, how can we progress knowledge generation? And I heard that apparently here in Australia, just like in Europe and everywhere else, we are not there. We sort of think we know where we want to go. And, I've, and the greatest boon that we could do for research, for knowledge generation, for per personalized, stratified, whatever you want to call it, I think we know what we mean, for that type of knowledge generation, would be to establish what some people now call a learning healthcare system. You mentioned the example of Dr. Lynch. There would be many more Dr. Lynch's and many more new findings if we had available the patient experience in some documented form so that we can then go back to some people like you and say, well, what happened there five years ago, etc. With pen and paper, that will not work. With silos, and I, I'm a bit cautious about this idea of, of consent and secondary consent, etc. I thought Australia had done a fantastic thing, and you are a light to the world with your opt-out versus opt-in mm. legislation. Mm. If everybody else had that, if we had that in Europe, I think we would be a step ahead. That's number one. Number two is, we talked about it, you talked about personalized, and I take that in, in science, I, I would say rather it, it's stratified, but Let's leave that aside. But where I sit, we still have to take decisions for populations. We can refine a label, and the payer can say, well, we pay for this group or for that group, but they can never be individualized decisions. That would be ad hoc, that would be intransparent, that's not possible. So what we all need, and we're struggling, where I sit at the EMA, we're struggling with how can we get the patient voice into our decision-making in such a way that it isn't anecdotal. Mm. To have one patient say, well, I need this, it helped me, yeah. that isn't going, that isn't moving forward. We need some way of transparently finding what is a patient preference, what is patient's risk aversion or patient's risk tolerance, and then put that in, in a transparent way, into our decision-making. And we don't really know at this point in time how we can translate that into population-based decisions. When you say information that's not anecdotal, though, aren't most patients or partners going to come to the conversation based on their own anecdote? And, and that's the way they understand, I know as a patient, I would as a partner, understand the way to communicate my story or my issue is through anecdote. Yes, but my own cannot, anecdotes, of I course, mean. we all are anecdotes mm -hmm. by definition. But I cannot pay, base a population-wide decision on one patient's experience. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Because yeah. this patient will tell me, authorize this product, I really want it, I tolerate the risk. The next patient over there would say, don't, don't, you're jeopardizing us, don't do that. That is not a basis. We have to find a way of representative, sort mm. of, whether it's average, I don't know how to, to express that, but we have to become more patient representative in our decision making. And mm. I'm not aware of any methodology that has so far found out. There are statistical methodologies, some people do that, to weigh their decision theory methodologies. We haven't, we haven't found it yet. Susan, I can see you need to jump in there. Just, and I think you're right. I don't think there are those examples within the healthcare system, but mm. I think there could well be examples in other walks of life where you could choose a representative system and see if that could be modelled within the healthcare system. And particularly in Europe, you know, I've lived in Germany where the works councils sit on the main boards of companies and the, the, the workers' voice is very well represented and very strongly represented in, 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 at the board level of, of German companies. So potentially mm -hmm. there's a way to look outside of the healthcare system and find a model that might be able to be transferred into healthcare. Because I think you're right, I don't think we've come across some, a model within healthcare systems in any of the countries where, that, where what you've just described is actually functioning well. But I, I tell you a cautionary tale, apparently, and it's probably an exaggeration. In the United States, there are as many patient groups for Duchenne muscular dystrophy as there are patients. Mm. And they all hate each other, <laughs> and they all fight each other, and some supported the authorization of a particular product that created a lot of waves, and the other patient group said, no, wrong, don't do it, you're funded by the industry, etc. That doesn't help us. Yeah. So, I'm not saying I have the, the solution, but this is an issue. And my last point is a very emotional. I heard yesterday that there is hype, there could be risks from genomic testing, overdiagnosing, if we authorize drugs to earlier patients could be at risk, etc. And my plea is, yes, I cannot deny that. That probably will happen. But what is your alternative? Yeah. Shall we stop research? We will not make it perfect. There will be casualties. There will be false starts. There will be errors. So my plea is, please let's accept that. Let's try to minimize it. But let's not, as we say, in German language you have that saying, if someone is so worried and say, well, if you commit suicide for fear of death, then that is also not a winning strategy. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Okay, yeah, so fail fast but, and move on quickly if need be. Yeah. All right, um, an important point. Um, Jeremy, can I throw over to you now? Now, I know you weren't here yesterday. In fact, you've only just got off the plane this morning. But um, given what you've heard thus far, your one or two takeouts. Well, I'm just going to pick up on some of the things that have been said already. Um, so we do need a new conversation. And the question is, who is going to lead it and who is going to listen? Because silos exist in medicine. We all know that, and it's been as a result of hundreds of years of siloing and the way that we train medical students. If you look back at British students, well, let's say London University students and medical students 30 years ago, there were white male rugby players, right? That's what we used to, we used to choose people and ability to catch a rugby ball. Uh, no, I'm, I'm serious about that, right? So, um, and that, of course, we've changed radically now. We have far more Asian students, we have far more uh, girls, um, and that changes the culture too. Um, so the thing is that we have to try and break down the silos, but it has to be driven by science. 
And one of the things that genomics and other omics scientists teach us now is that a lot of diseases that we consider to be really very different, right, and, have, and are treated by different specialists actually have fundamental common biological causes, genetic linkages. So there are genes that connect to cardiovascular risk as well as cancer risk and even Alzheimer's risk. So there's these bridging genes that are now teaching us that biology is so complex so we need to look at it in a completely different way. And that's the way I think we should go about this is to, is through science we educate our next generation of students to understand the connectivity of the whole, mm -hmm. and that also includes your environment and the individual nature of your environment. You know, you as a patient, every experience of your life changes your probabilities of getting something bad just slightly. Mm -hmm. Make it better, make it worse. And it's very difficult to capture that information. That's the other thing. Is, so the anecdotal stuff is often dismissed, mm -hmm. right, by doctors, because they don't know how to process it. Right? They, they say, oh, interesting story, but as you say, that might not like the other person for those individual reasons. So there's other things we need to think about, which is how do we capture anecdote digitally? Mm. Right? Because there are now pieces of software you can get that can take language and can actually reduce it Absolutely. to a coded system. Yeah. Um, and people are starting to use this in things like autism now as well. well and, and the other thing that's very relevant for is doctor's note-taking. Um, that can be really very different. On the, so you can, two doctors can see the same patient, they can be both very good doctors. You look at the notes and it looks like two different people yeah. because they put differential emphasis on things that they hear according to their own experience, right? right? And that's another thing where sort of, a sort of some sort of semantic learning um, algorithm which allows you to capture doctor's notes and puts that de depth about the patient background into the digital universe. Mm. And once you've got it in an in a, a, a algorithmic form, you can actually mathematically analyze it. Okay. And that changes the way we, that will change the way we do medicine in the future. Mm. And, and communication theory has been doing that. I mean, my master's was done um, similarly to this, but actually I did it by hand because the digital system didn't exist all those years ago. But truly, the qualitative analysis that's, that's possible now for, for the collection of stories mm. and the analysis of stories and their application, therefore, in, in, a very, in, in a very scientific environment, it already exists. The technology, mm. the capability is there to take anecdotes and mm. actually turn them into useful data. Mm. Well, th there's even a role there, isn't there, for uh, just sophisticated coding as well. Mm. Um, I'm involved in a research project at the moment where we're looking at uh, attitudes, Australian attitudes around gender equality, and the survey has been so massive, the amount of data is so scary, but we're finding that coding is actually yeah, really, a really powerful way of, of getting through that material. But, but sorry, coding is very heterogeneous as well. That's the same sort of problem. Mm -hmm. And you cannot take advantage of the omics technology and the digital firepower unless you have some sort of unified coding system, ways of describing disease mm -hmm. in the common, common formats. Um, so we do really have to take a big step back to be able to go forward with the new technologies because mm. the new technologies are really at the present the best they can possibly do is augment existing diagnostic mm. procedures not replace them there's a huge amount of inertia mm. for doing that apart from the fact you've got to validate them uh, all properly so what we need to do is identify key cases where we can use omics data to en enhance and augment diagnostics with an aim of trying to replace conventional types of diagnostics in the future where it makes actual economic sense to do so. Can I ask you, Jeremy, do you, 
think or feel that Australia is is ahead of the pack or doing well in terms of new technologies and personalised medicine? I think you're doing quite well. Right, uh, you're doing better than London. <laughs> That's very diplomatic. Yeah. Right, uh, I mean, the, the digital, well, digital health records don't really exist in London. It's all over the place. So although the, there's a lot of data, it's not standardised. The UK, UK, or Britain, rather, sorry, um, England, rather, has really failed to be able to, 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 to do this properly. Scottish healthcare system is fantastic, mm. right, with really good data records. Mm. Um, for we, reasons I know, unfathomable we cannot do it in England, possibly because of the scale and the costs involved in on implementing it. So you have an advantage in Australia in that you do have a relatively small population, right? That's, you know, if you want to change 24 something... 24 million we think is no, huge. No, it is a relatively small population, right? So you can effect change in a, in a, uh, a reasonable time frame, assuming there's the, the will to do it. The other thing is that when we talk about things like biobanks, where you're trying to analyse and sample large populations to understand the basis of disease. Um, if you look at the UK biobank, it's got half a million people in it for 68 million people, right? If you look at the Chinese, the proposed Chinese uh, uh, biobank is going to be 20 million. That still doesn't represent 1.4 billion people very well. Whereas in, in Australia, you have the opportunity to be able to capture um, patient biology towards mm. the scale you need to mm. describe the population. So I think you've got a lot going for you here. And you're also a relatively well-off country. country. I know there's deprived groups, there are obviously Aboriginal groups, etc., um, that, 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 that suffer. But you do, you're in with a fighting chance to be able to do this mm. properly with the right political backing and government funding. Uh, what you say makes perfect sense and you're absolutely right, but yes, it does come down to the political agenda as well. I'm going to throw open to questions. We'd love to hear from you, so please do take to the microphones. Uh, Harriet, your key one or two or three takeouts from what you've heard thus far. Thank you. Well, yes, I think, I mean, there have been many, many um, things that have come up in the last two days that are hugely interesting. One of them is the interplay or the sort of the friction maybe between the digital and the face-to-face -face and how we manage the move towards these new technologies that are going to manage all of these things online. There's, there's all sorts of opportunity to make value out of the data. The thing that really interest, interests me in, in terms of the sort of AI that might support the doctor-patient relationship is how you build in the in, irrationality that is occurring within that discussion because a, a computer is inherently logical and we aren't. And, and, you know, it's very difficult to model that in amongst it all. So I'm, I'm really interested in how we sort of manage that in order that the tech is there to support the face-to-face, -face, which has come up time and again in the last two days as being, as being a crucial part of it. And one of the things that has been particularly interesting with that is the idea of the bottom-up approach. So we've had a number of examples. We had the quantum physics versus the universe. We've had several, um, you know, the, the NASA rocket ships and, and how that top-down management was, was hopeless. And, and, and we've then also had this continuous stream of the need to talk to the community and to get the engagement and to actually bring in the consumer as a partner rather than as a sort of subject of the research. And, and that seems to be a really strong message that, that's coming out that's really interesting. The final thing that really struck me was the talk yesterday on overdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, I was thinking about how that sort of sits 
do we need to change the point at which we decide whether or not to have the test? Or are we making decisions about which information we give back? Now, I think from, from your talk, it would suggest that information should be shared and that we need for it to be the consumer that's making the decision about what's important. But for me, that raises the question of which information and when and how we actually manage that in order to make the most use of it from both sides of the partnership, really. So I think, I think that's a key yes. question to move forwards with. Mm. It's a pity that Dr Ray Moynihan wasn't here this afternoon to, to hear Susan's yes. uh, talk, because I think it gives a very different slant to the very things that he was raising concern about. Uh, we'll take a question from the audience here. Thanks a lot. Andrew Knight's my name. I'm a GP from Southwest Sydney. I'm also on the board of MPS. I've loved these two days. I've loved the tech. I love an eye knife. Yes. Um, uh, but as I watched the tech and I saw the picture of that woman in the dome and her tumour emerging out, I just had a sense of loneliness as she looked at her tumour. Um, all that I've done in, in trying to improve general practice has been sure about all the what we call domain two of our curriculum, all that knowledge, the knife and the, the numbers and the data. I love that. But we also work really hard on domain one, which is communication, mm. connection, mm. deep connection. And when I think about that personal healthcare, to me, it's, it is a partnership, a person alongside, a, a caring healer alongside a person who's experiencing the loneliness and disorientation mm. of severe illness. Mm. Um, when I listened to you, Susan, I heard that story. I heard your GP partnering with you to get that blooming MRI result. But then he disappeared. Yeah. Mm. And I thought, you sounded so alone at that point. You were alone, you said. Yes. And so I'm doubting, is the things that I believe not true? Or is it really, really rare, that connection with a primary care provider? All the evidence is that if you have that primary care provider alongside you, the health system is efficient and effective and the patient experience is better and the outcomes are better. Can you just comment on the role I've actually ended up writing an article called the, rare, the, the Common Problem of Rare Disease in General Practice. It's really common that we GPs deal with this. We should be alongside our patients, but it, it sounds like it failed you. Could you comment on the role of your primary care provider in that situation? Um, thanks for the question. To be honest, it would be incredibly unfair on my GP if you were to go away with that impression. So I've obviously got something a little wrong in, in the take because... I was speaking to oncologists that didn't know about immunotherapy. And to expect my GP to understand better than an oncologist how to access those services and those clinical trials for me, I think would be unfair. Because I was, he, his job was to send me in the, in, in the direction of the specialist whom he hoped would be able to provide me with that information and that help. They let me down. I mean, every time I would go back and we would have those conversations, but there's only so much, I think, within his bailiwick, there's only so much within his gift in order to um, solve such an, such an entrenched um, problem in terms of the silos and, and who's responsible, and in particular, accessing very new treatments to Australia and to have expected him to know more and be better able to access it than an oncologist, uh, my oncologists, I think would probably be an unfair take on it. So I think he has gone along the journey with me and, um, as I said, in those halcyon days of, um, uh, of that care, he was across everything, he read every report. If something come through with an anomalous result, he knew before I came into, my, into, into his surgery. So um, I have been blessed not blessy, with, um, <laughs> with, that, with that relationship I've had with my GP. 
So I do think part of the answer might be that the, you know, they specialise in the endometrium or they specialise yes. in the bowel mucosa. Your primary care provider specialises in you. Yeah. Mm. So their responsibility does end when the mucosa's not there, but never ends because you're there. So I do see it as part of my role. Mm. I mean, I've worked in that system. I've worked in yeah. hospitals. do see it as part of my role to advocate, to find, to work with you to find the answers. Where do you live? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it took, it's been a wonderful question, and, and I'm thinking, but you know, not all um, not all uh, GPs are as as generous as you, and not all um, partners in healthcare are as informed and as determined and mm -hmm. insistent as Susan, of course. But speaking of consumers, I'd like to throw back to our consumer rapporteurs, Deborah. Something you said yesterday has been uh, keeps coming back to me, which was a beautiful line about um, it was something you were quoting about the expert being at both ends of the stethoscope. Um, what, given your role as a consumer rapporteur and involved in, in the consumer organisations around healthcare, what, what, what are your thoughts about what you're hearing? It's been mind-blowing. <laughs> I'm so glad I was invited to come over and share and learn so much from all of you. You're amazing people. Um, I guess the key take-home messages for me, if I just may say that, is um, it gets back to communication. And I don't mean communication, just words. It's, it's the language, it's body language, um, it's collaboration and co-design, and it's just getting back to the kindness. And if you don't, patients, both end of, people at both ends of the stethoscope are the experts in healthcare, and we just need to ask each other and ask the patient what's important for them. I thought the comments you made about kindness, empathy and compassion were very, very powerful ones. And thank you for reminding us thank of that you. as well. Thank you for the opportunity. We have another question over here. Uh, Winston Leo, I'm on the NPS board and a medical oncologist. Um, I was pleased to hear Professor Nicholson comment that the, the technologies that you uh, so fantastically presented uh, are not intended to be for rich populations mm. and it needs to be scaled out to the whole population. But I, I put it to the whole um, panel that we already have a situation where, and I'll use the example of pancreas cancer, um, your postcode determines how you get treated um, and in Sydney, for example, and it determines whether or not you get an operation for an operable cancer. Um, it would also seem to me that if you're going, living in a postcode where you're not getting, going to get an operation for your operable cancer, you're not going to get access to these technologies, whether or not they're experimental or standard of care. Be interested in the panel's thoughts on that. A very interesting question. Thank you very much for that. And I must admit, it did go through my mind too, that are we in danger of getting to a situation where uh, uh, money and, and serious money can buy you personalised care that is not going to be available to others. And I'm looking at you, Jeremy, because it was during your no, talk I that I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, for example, if you're a tycoon and you have, yeah. you know, I think someone mentioned the word tycoon yesterday, but you have serious money and you have the potential to pay for something that no one else is going to fund, um, we are talking about potentially creating a, a, a different Well, this happens system. already. I mean, that is the real world. 
um, and you know, private medicine, you know, people in the royal family, they tend to get treated quite well. Um, so, um, yeah, so of course a lot of these technologies and the things we talk about are actually really still experimental medicine tools. They are not ready for deployment in the general population. And by, almost by definition, it's going to be world centers of excellence that have these technologies um, available. So if you happen to be in the catchment area of you know, one of the, the top, you know, Harvard Medical School or, or, or you know, whatever it is, then you're going to be, you know, have potential access to this. All we can say is that what we're trying to do is to create a knowledge framework that allows you to simplify it and roll it out at a, at a, at a, a broader level. And that's all to do with cost because these technologies are all very, very expensive. I and mean, genomics is still expensive to do at the, at the, at the real population level. Um, you know, if you look at, at, at just Imperial College the Healthcare Trust in London, that's one of the largest, I think, uh, we have 10 million samples a year go through chemical pathology. That's just one hospital trust. And to get genomics even remotely to that level, you know, is, 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 is you know, miles and miles away. Actually, another thing about genomics is, you know, we have, we've got a big shortage of genetic counsellors. Now, once you've got the genetic information, who's going to tell you what it all means, right? We've worked out it'll take 50 years of education of new genetic counsellors to catch up with the rate of genetic information production, right? So whatever you think about these things, and they're great for localised places, it's a long time before you know, your local service is going, to, is going to have it, whatever it is. So we have to work at it together. And the bigger the, the collaboration is, the quicker we'll make it. And it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, Aline, comment on that. So I think th that, that is part of the, the... Money is part of the reason why you have postcode medicine, perhaps. Some of it's also skill, and quite a lot of it will be the expertise, the specialisation, whether there's somebody in that postcode who can provide the service. And I think that's a broader issue for how we, how we educate, how we think about the professions and how we provide services and, in, and how we use teams in a better way so that we provide better coverage um, for all our populations. Because at the moment, if there's one specialist in one postcode, that's who you're going to go to. And as Susan did, you shop around and try and find the guy with the bells and whistles. Yeah, indeed. Another question from here. Thanks. Thank you, Paul Neeskin. Do you all know where I'm from? Um, just and thank in, you for your questions throughout. Um, just in reply to the previous speaker, I can tell him that uh, the question of workforce maldistribution, um, specialists and generalists, was a, a topic of substantial discussion at last weekend's AMA National Conference here in Canberra. Mm -hmm. So the question of equity of access um, to specialists and generalists was high on the agenda. Look forward to some AMA um, announcements on that issue. Um, coming back to uh, where we are here, um, my um, observation, I've been pondering for three days uh, personal to population of personal health care. And as a GP of 30 years, um, I've been have the privilege of vaccinating children of the children I vaccinated, which is a lovely experience. Um, I've always wondered how how can I be more personal and closer to the patient than I am? And lots of family GPs are intimately connected to their patients. And our consumers are, um, like to talk about patient-focused care. And I think, and I'd be interested in Lynn's comments on this particularly. Um, it, and we are, certainly all clinicians are focused on their patients and their outcomes for the patient. We've heard about genomics, we've heard about phenomics, we've heard about 
the, the, what digital data can do for us in terms of research and flexibility of communication. But I have a concern about where all these new things are actually going to lead to. Um, is it actually going to lead to more patient-focused care? Or is it actually going to lead to more patient-specific disease-focused care? And the old adage, um, you know, there are doctors who treat patients and there's doctors who treat diseases. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, genomics, phenomics, data, research are all great, but do they actually, are they a, are they a, a, a plus or a minus to, to help that thing called patient-focused care, which is about the doctor-patient, and when I say doctor, I mean health professional-patient relationship. Um, and we've had lots of buzzwords we've had. I think the buzzwords come and go, but the buzzword that I like is actually outcome-based medicine where the focus is evidence-based, it's evidence-based and it's focused on the outcomes for individuals. Mm. Coming back to uh, David Sackett's original uh, definition of EBM. But OBM, I think we need more OBM, where our focus is on the outcomes for our individual patients and that research always has to come back to focus on outcomes for real people in the real world. And as I said on Thursday, a doctor's role is to ensure a patient's journey in life is a good health and a good, a good life and a good death. So having had my, got that off my chest. <laughs> Thank you. My question to the panel, and particularly Lynn, my question to the panel, particularly Lynn, um, is do we think that uh, our genomics, phenomics, data, and all the new things that we've learned about is going to, uh, how's that going to fit with uh, patient outcome-based medicine? The OBM. The yeah. OBM. Mm. <laughs> Ivan said this morning, um, healthcare is a cottage industry, and some, for some reason that works. Mm. I love that uh, comment. And I think we can't lose the we can't lose that connection between the clinician and the person receiving care. That has to be at the heart of caring, because otherwise we don't have a healthcare system. We have a health system, or we have a disease-based system. So we absolutely need that. When we take this information that's in the lab at the moment, and we're hearing it's in the lab or it's in the clinical trials, and we make that available in digestible, usable pieces of information to be used in that conversation, I think that could be really powerful. Because if then the consumer or the says, well, my, the things I really care about are these four things, maybe I'm not so worried about years of life, I might be more worried about um, how productive I am, whether I have certain symptoms, whether I don't have them. If that conversation's had and we know which of the treatments might be most effective for that particular outcome, I think that would be a fabulous place for us to be. And that's where I would like to see us be using this, using this fabulous information that we are gathering and understanding and getting a much deeper understanding of disease and, and how we manage disease, but using it in a conversation that's then about the person and what they care about and, and what they're looking for in their treatment. Would any of the other panellists like to, before we move on, make a comment on the, on the, the well, reflecting on the question and OBMs? Slightly linked to the original, uh, to the question before as well, in terms of how you, you know, the postcode lottery and how you access specialisms. Because with both those questions, I was thinking about um, the European reference networks, which is an approach that's um, being developed in Europe to try and support rare disease patients. And the difficulty with rare disease patients is they're obviously spread very widely, and the likelihood that they have someone, a specialist, close to them is very remote. But the, the, the opportunity, 
you know, it's already difficult to have established they're a rare disease patient in the first place, let alone to then have them actually access the specialist care they need. So the tech, the, the opportunity to have virtual relationships with specialists who are in another country or, you know, in another part of Europe is potentially going to be a really powerful way to actually look at both of those. So you've, you've both got the patient in front of the specialist that they need and actually local to them effectively and can have that individual sort of potential um, communication and therefore hopefully the outcomes that follow. But you're also accessing specialist tools that you need that are fairly sort of sparsely spread. And that, so I don't think you, it has to be one or the other is I think the point I'm trying to make. But there's an opportunity, so long as we keep central that idea of the outcomes and the communication and the need for the face-to-face -face interaction as much as possible, to then mm. use the tech to manage that rather than to replace it or mm. sort of bury it. Indeed. Hans, did you want to add to that? No, I think much no. has been said already. No. I, the, the last thing I want to do um, today as we wind up is have all, each of the panellists have a little think about if there was one thing that you think everyone in this room should start doing immediately in their practice, in their work, in their research, what would that be? And whilst you ponder that, I'll just go over a, a few or reflect a few on a few of the things that I've noted over the last couple of days. Um, and I thank you all for the, the very, very rich discussion we've had. I found it fascinating. I, I think um, some of the things that jumped out at me particularly were around communication and, and the need to um, improve communication across the, the partner, patient, consumer, health provider uh, relationship, but also politically, also the, um, media relations, just be better storytellers and how do we support, um, how do we support practitioners to be more media savvy. That really stood out for me. Um, a lot of what Lisa uh, Jackson-Pulver said about uh, Indigenous groups and Aboriginal groups and the disadvantage there was a reminder, particularly, of course, in Reconciliation Week. Um, and how do we bring culture and stories to the narrative of the future, I thought, was a, a very powerful point. I loved comments from the rapporteurs about um, co-design. Co-design with uh, consumers. In, in, in health um, treatments and outcomes. Uh, and Joe jo Watson reminded us very much about how uh, it, w when dealing with consumer groups, it's not about the loudest group or the loudest lobby group that actually cuts through, um, which was an important point. We've talked a lot about adaptive systems and adaptive regulatory systems, and of course, health is a very complex adaptive system. Um, I noted that fundamental interaction in healthcare is sitting down between the clinician and the patient or the partner. From now on, I'm just going to say the partner. But the sitting down together, we've heard a lot of that again this afternoon. Um, when we talk about technology not being an end in itself, and Lynn noted that the biggest changes have been in practice, not technology, which I thought was a, a very important point too. And that technology is a tool, it's not an end in itself. Um, and Jeremy had noted that no matter what the technology is and how clever it, it is, um, it, it doesn't matter if the doctor can't see what he, she needs to see quickly. Um, again, comes back to communication too. 
uh, if the doctor, the health practitioner can't see what needs to be done quickly, it gets put aside or put in the can. And the clinical actionability is critical. And we heard when talking about the regulatory in, uh, system in Australia and also the need for transparency. And, and it was said that in Australia there's a need for more transparency from both regulators and industry. We talked a lot about adaptive pathways and access versus evidence, the conundrum there. And as mentioned, Ray Moynihan's uh, discussion about the need to be cautious uh, around uh, innovation and cautious that innovation doesn't threaten evaluation. And he raised concerns that there is a watering down, he believed, of regulation and evaluation. Um, a lot of talk, of course, about genomic, the genomics and whether that was being hyped or overhyped. And of course, Ray talked a lot about overdiagnosis too, which um, certainly ran a, a, or rang a, a number of alarm bells, particularly on the data that he used. And Andrew, uh, I, I noted we talk, he talked about provisional approval. Faster processes usually means more uncertainty. And the price of provisionality, or provisionally approved, sorry, the price of provisionally approved medicines should reflect that this is a shared risk arrangement. Goodness, there are so many notes, it's hard to know where to stop, but uh, it, it came through very strongly to me that this is about public education. We need a new approach where scientists and medics are trying to drive the education process in a much more aggressive way than before, and that is an important thing to note. And I noted that there's a lot of inertia to translation, particularly in private practice where there is money to be made in doing lots of tests too. So uh, I could go on and on and on. The issue of trust, I think, uh, was raised, and again, this morning um, in Harriet's talk and afterwards in our discussion, the idea of, of not only building trust but having trust in, in the processes and having trust in medicos and, and health practitioners uh, and trust about sharing data to the importance of that. Now, at that point, I'm going to throw back to our panel and ask them, given we wanted to leave with a bit of an action plan, a bit of a sense of, okay, we've heard a great deal. Where do we take this? What do we do with it? So if there was one thing you think that everyone in this room should start doing immediately, what would it be? Now, Susan, I'm going to start with you okay. and we'll work through the panel, but what do you think that one thing should be? First, I want to come to that point about trust. I was uh, here for the discussion this morning. And actually, if you, if you think about that deeply, you really are going to build a relationship of trust with somebody that's giving a surgeon that's doing a bowel cancer operation. Trust sometimes takes time. And by rights, you're only going to have, hopefully, one bowel cancer operation. You know, it, it, I'm not sure whether trust is the issue or whether respect, respect. is the issue. Because um, respect is something which comes from treating somebody like an adult, having an adult-to-adult -adult conversation. And when I was discussing that on the slide earlier on, I think it's important to explain that what that really means isn't, isn't sharing everything, expecting your patient to have a high level, a high degree of understanding and a high level of education. Mm -hmm. What it means is sitting down with that person with enough respect mm -hmm. that you're sat opposite them and you're saying, 
this is the situation, these are the options. Somebody mentioned yesterday, I, give, I ask, my, I ask my, my, my patients whether they would like to have the um, long version or the short version. Mm. And, and it's actually having the respect to engage with somebody enough to say, how would you like to do this? Mm. How do you want mm. to have this conversation? How do you want this relationship Mm. To, to, to go forward. So it's not so much about trust and trustworthiness as much as respect, because you can come away from that, that situation. It's very hard to build trust in a 10-minute, 15-minute mm. appointment, but you can come away feeling respected and therefore respect the advice from that person. So maybe just the understanding that every encounter, every engagement should start from a basis of mutual respect would be a great place to start. Indeed. No, it's a, a beautifully put, a mutual respect indeed. So do you have a, a, a thought about the one thing you think everyone should be doing? Respecting everybody else. Respect. Okay. Beautifully put. Jeremy. Um, I suppose what I'm going to say echoes what you've said um, a little. I, when, I, when I first became a head of department about nine, nine years ago, uh, and as a new boy as being head of department, I was shocked at heads of departments meeting how little patients are actually discussed. Right, this is faculty of medicine at Imperial. In fact, most of my senior professorial colleagues look at patients as though they're sources of data for their next paper in Nature. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm sorry, that's still, still partly true. So I was determined that was not going to be the way I wanted things to be run. So the thing that I would say is in any research program, in medical research, you put the patient at the top of the research pyramid. That's what we do everything for, okay? And all technologies and all new approaches should be, if that, no matter how interesting they are scientifically, should be thought of in a way that you can translate that properly. As I say, look at the, look at the big picture. The other thing is, coming back to, to silos, um, is we have to break those down. That means changing the way that we teach. And increasingly, we have to break down the barriers between research and teaching. And often in very big universities, quarter, there's very different things. You do teaching, get out of the way so you can get on with your research. Mm -hmm. That's really got to change. Um, and on, you know, the latest generation of kids on the block are really digitally wired. So mm -hmm. use digital technology more and more. E-learning, collective experience, uh, learning with it in immersive environments. Use the tools that we use for research that are very visual to also change medical education. Lovely, okay, so putting the patient, the, peop, well, the patient, the partner, the consumer, the PPC, at, top, at the top of the triangle, a very important one too, mm -hmm. in teaching. Hans, what is one thing you think everyone should start doing? So, I will start with where you left off, and you spun it negative and say, some of us think patients are primarily data. And that is my colleagues. No, no, <laughs> fair enough. That is, and of course, that should not be the case. But patients generate data. And if you ask me what should we do, we should make it clear as a scientific community that this data also has value. Mm. That has nothing to do with disrespect. But I would move the discussion from if you are a patient and someone analyzes your data, there is a risk for you. Your privacy may be breached, whatever. I would move that from saying, if you're a patient, nobody analyzes your data. Then there is a risk for you. Mm. Because we're not making the best use of a resource that we could have. So I would argue, shift that debate, public debate, communicate that. Communicate mm. that data do have value. Mm. 
And if I may go so far as to say, maybe there is a moral imperative to share data. Research is a generational contract. The fact that I can be treated, hopefully successfully, is based on the fact that before me, a generation of patients was experimented on, allowed themselves mm. to be on that. So do I not have an obligation to hand that over to the next generation? Mm. Mm. I would put that into the public debate. The idea that the data has value is a powerful one, and it, it echoes to me coming back to what our consumer rapporteurs spoke about in co-design, which comes back to the partnership, the co-design of treatment, and understanding that their, their own product, their data, is of value and can be used in the design of treatment seems to be emerging here too. And Susan, yeah, I know you're busting to say no, something I just there. wanted to supplement that. I mentioned that my father had gone through extremely exper experimental chemotherapies in the 1970s to no avail for his health. But we now understand for people with Lynch syndrome that there are certain chemotherapies that are, now, that are not effective on Lynch syndrome bowel cancers because of his contribution and of his sacrifice. And I very much hope with two children of my own that what I'm going through at the moment might well be providing data which will make life better for them and it's about that whole pr principle I think of paying that forward mm. as Dr. Eichler just mm. said. And understanding though that you are part of that process Absolutely. and that there is value in that indeed. Harriet. Which then leads me to two points to follow up with those. One is that we get better at telling people about the good news stories mm. of the use of health data. We tend to only hear about it when someone has accidentally left a laptop on a train or whatever <laughs> it is. But but actually getting better at saying this is why this is important and this is what we've done with it and this is the progress we're making. And then in terms of what we can all do, actually I suspect a very simple immediate thing is that everybody m could benefit from having a better understanding of their own family history and their mm. own context and values in terms of what they want as a consumer or patient or partner. And I suspect we're still not desperately good at that population-wise. It's mm. a very important point and of course Susan's story really, really highlights that. Lynn, what do you think people should take away with and do immediately? Uh, so I would really like to see us systematically collecting the consumer experience. So not just the data points that health professionals think are important, but the data points that consumer thinks are important. So I, I like that idea of digitalising stories so that because what you tell is the bits that are important to you. You can't always articulate it if you ask me the three things that are most important, but I'll tell you in a story what's most important. So I really like the, the idea that we do that systematically and we do it um, in a consistent way across different therapies and we start putting that into clinical trials right now. And if I can have a second thing, we need to have the ethical... Um, information debate in the community. We need to get journalists in this conversation really right now so that they are helping us educate the public um, because none of us understood economics a little while ago but now we can all sort of talk about all sorts of economic terms that you know maybe we only half understand but at least we have some, se some mm. sense of and we mm. aren't afraid of anymore mm. and I think we need to have at least enough sense of these terms around the various omics that we're not afraid to have a conversation with our mm. doctor about them. Indeed. I'm just going to finish this without both our consumer um, rapporteurs also. Just something that you would like everyone to take away from this, this conference. So Deborah's already used these words, so is Susan and a number of people yesterday. But it goes back to, and I'm sure a number, most of this room's already using it, but it's so important to me, I want to raise it, that asking your patient, your consumer, your partner, 
what matters to them when, when working with them. So thank you. Thank you, Melissa and Deborah. Well, if I had a magic wand, um, <laughs> I would say that um, kindness is the reciprocal kindness. It's a two-way street between researchers and consumers, patients, consumers, and everyone. Is Kindness is the key that will open the door to good communication, co collaboration, and co-design. Beautiful, reciprocal kindness. I love that one. Thank you so much. Look, ladies and gentlemen, we have almost come to the end of this session, but before I, I close it off, I'm going to call on our chair, the chair of NPS Medicine Wise, Peter Turner, to come to the stage and just do an official close for us. And as he does, would you please thank our wonderful panel for their contributions today and throughout the conference. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, what a wonderful few days um, and a wonderful symposium. You know, the future is both exciting but always challenging. But I think humans live by those sorts of challenges. Lynn, unfortunately, every time you see me lately, it'll be like Groundhog Day. Yet another farewell. <laughs> You'll get used to it. It takes a while. Ladies and gentlemen, you're here because of this lady. This is the lady who put together this conference 10 conferences ago and set the standard. And the standard keeps getting higher, like the, the talks are just brilliant. The discussion is quite engaging. And healthcare is a wonderful field to work in. You're doing wonderful things for people. After all, you could all work in munitions or <laughs> other great areas uh, to leave alone. This particular initiative is just one that Lynn has taken over the year. Her commitment to the quality use of medicines, to using the evidence base to make better decisions has been ongoing all her career. She has a, an ongoing passion and I'm sure she'll take it when she goes to England in the next uh, week or month or so and we wish her well um, with her husband, Iqbal. I'm sure they'll come back with new ideas and we'll see you, Lynn, working in quality use of medicine somewhere in the future. I think your greatest achievement is the organisation you've built and the impact it has on the healthcare of all Australians. You've built a brilliant team. This lady started in a little office in a terrace house in Surrey Hills in, in, in Sydney. First employee, for a while there, there were a handful of employees. There's now 300 employees in this organisation. That's a testament to the ability that she has brought to um, healthcare and the quality use of medicines over the years. Lynn, you leave behind a world-class organisation. Uh, it remains for me to say thank you on behalf of the Board of Directors for all that you've done. You've been a pleasure to work with and I wish you all, all the success in the future. Thank you.
so much. Thanks for carrying. Would you like to say a few words? I'll say a few words. I'm already starting to feel like Dame Nelly. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, and thank you um, to those people who, first of all, who put on this conference, which, you know, of course wasn't me. I said, well, I'm very good at um, putting my people forward and letting them sink or swim, and luckily they mostly swim. But they have done a fabulous job, so thank you, Karen, and your committee. You've really, really hit the spot with this conference. And thank you, Roseanne, for the fantastic job that you have done. Really appreciate that. Roseanne jumped into the breach at not quite the last minute, but she's pulled it off with real style, so thank you. And to Lydia and your team as well. I've been really fortunate over the last 20 years to work for NPS. I've been able to um, really have free reign a lot of the time to be creative and do innovative things, and I've had the best people in the world to work with. The most wonderful executive team who are so talented, who really take the weight off my shoulders and get things done. A board who has let me, um, I guess, have enough rope to do what I needed to do, but also give me a secure base when things didn't look so rosy. And I really appreciate that. Um, Peter, thank you particularly. I've learnt a lot from you. Um, I may not have been ready to learn what I've learnt from you in the last few years before that, but I really appreciate what I have learnt from you. So it's been really, really great. And all of that time, um, we've had support from the Department of Health for the work we do. And again, that's been really important because it's meant we've had a really tight tie between the implementation that we do on the ground and the work we do with general practitioners and pharmacists and consumers and others and what government policy is trying to drive. And someone said, I don't know whether it was today or yesterday, healthcare moves as fast as governments, which made me think I might want to be in Italy or somewhere where they keep changing over. So maybe you move faster, I'm not sure. But in some ways it's true. If it's not political will, we can't do things. And having had political will that supported quality use of medicines and tests has been really important. So thank you for the ride. I think there'll be more speeches and more opportunities for these. So um, <laughs> I'm not going to take up your time today. And thank you for being at this conference. We've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude NMS 2018. Thank you for your participation, your engagement. It has been a wonderful, as I say, rich uh, couple of days of discussion. And no doubt we look forward to seeing you again in two years' time. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy Canberra. Thank you very much. Goodbye.